And then this coming just, a, just tomorrow as we get ready to fly out, this is the team that's gonna fly out tomorrow to Lebanon to go and to work in the life center that they were just talking about on that video. Uh, they, it is now complete and we're actually gonna be working in that and doing some medical work there and uh, working with the Lebanese people there, the Syrian refugee people there and all the people that are around and surrounding that area. So this is the team and we have Miss Rhonda Kern over here, Sharon Talbert, Cheryl Parrish, Sandra Gibson, and my wife, Greta, as we get ready to, to depart tomorrow. And we just want to have, that, have a little bit of prayer time uh, to, to, tonight for that. And then also we're going with about, uh, I think, 18 altogether. Brooklyn Tabernacle is going to be with us. Some from Brooklyn Tabernacle and a, a few others from around the country are going to be with us. And it's going to be a wonderful time. So we're praying for all of that team. So I pray that you'll just pray for us and that team that's, that we're going to be meeting up with in New York tomorrow. So. And the unofficial name of this team is Sean and the Ladies. <laughs> All right. So pray for these ladies. <laughs> um, we are so excited. Open Eyes is a tremendous ministry partner, and we really appreciate everything that they do. And it's a blessing to partner with them. And it's very exciting that Brooklyn Tab is a part of this as well. Are they bringing the choir? That's all I want to know. Hey, folks, let's, let's extend a hand toward this team right here, and let's ask God to bless. Yeah, you can give them a hand. Let's just reach out and ask God to bless this team. Amen. Father, we just are so excited about our partnership with this tremendous ministry organization uh, who does such wonderful things around the world that really corresponds with our mission here of reaching, raising, and releasing undeniable followers of Jesus Christ, God. Uh, nothing more important in the mission and life of a church than to follow the Great Commission. And so we ask your blessing to be upon this team. Would you just anoint them? Would you uh, give them uh, your vision as they go? Would you guide their hands, bless their work? And would you give them safe travel and return them safely to us, God? But all throughout this journey, may they be a shining witness for Jesus Christ. And hold high that message of the gospel that he came to seek and save the lost. And we pray this blessing upon this team in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. amen. Thank you, guys. God bless you, team. One more time, folks. Amen. All right. Well, I'm excited to dive back into the book of Revelation with you. Uh, I literally have to stop and uh, think inwardly before I say which book I'm in because on Sundays I'm in Genesis and I don't want to make the mistake. I mean, you could end up in the total wrong end of your Bible, you know. So let's look now in uh, Revelation chapter 3. And we've been studying the seven churches. The seven churches. Seven letters to seven churches. Churches of Asia Minor of the first century. And the backstory here, just to remind you, the last living apostle, John, has been exiled to the island of Patmos uh, by the, the Roman emperor Domitian. He is there now uh, in his, his uh, final years. He's an aged man. He's doing hard labor. Who appears to him on that island but none other than the risen Lord Jesus Christ, who says, John, take a letter. Seven letters, in fact. And I want you to send my words to the, to the totality of my church on the earth, represented in these seven historic churches. And we've been studying these churches. They are literal churches. They are actual physical churches of John's day, but the letters that go out to them contain valuable content that is beneficial for churches all across history, including this church right here. 
And what we have also mentioned is that they represent, I believe, eras of church history. They're real churches of John's day, but they represent eras that are, because Revelation is a prophetic book, we are looking ahead through these churches and their example to see uh, seasons in the life of the global Christian church across time. And we have looked at Ephesus which was the church that left its first love. We have looked at Smyrna in week two, the suffering church, the persecuted church. We've looked at Pergamum, the church of great compromise. We've looked at Thyatira, the church that uh, became corrupted uh, completely. And last week we looked, sadly, tragically, at Sardis, the dead church, that he says you have an aim, you look alive, but you are dead. And now we find our way to this church called Philadelphia. Philadelphia, it's the smallest of all the churches that Christ is writing to. And in your notes, uh, it's one of two churches among these that have no rebuke whatsoever. Christ only gives good marks to this church, the other one being Smyrna, uh, the persecuted church. And it is also the church that is given the greatest blessing by the Lord. Uh, and so if you were going to choose one of these seven churches, this would be the one that you'd want to choose, okay? Smyrna, also a great church. Uh, most of them got killed, though. So you might want to go to Philadelphia. And so let's look at this letter here. We're just going to dive right in tonight. Once again, Jesus introduces himself. This was the pattern with letters. If you wrote a letter in the first century, you started by introducing yourself. And so we're going to look, as we have every week, at the Lord's character. The Lord's character. And in verse 7, he begins to describe himself. And in all of these letters, he describes the different facet of, or facets of his, of his character, attributes. Uh, and these will have a, a special relevance to the church that he is uh, writing to. It says in verse 7, and to the angel, which is the pastor of this church, the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write the words of the Holy One, the true one. And so this facet of the Lord's character is in your notes that he is perfect and he is trustworthy. Okay, to be holy is to be perfect. You and I are declared holy when we put our faith in Christ. Uh, we still have flesh and so we are not physically perfect, but spiritually when God looks at us, he sees the perfection of Christ. And so he is holy, he is perfect, and he's the true one. He is trustworthy. Uh, he acts out of his flawless nature. There is no error in him. There is no moral flaw in him. Uh, you can take his word to the bank. Whatever he says is true, it is reliable, he will never mislead, he will never deceive. And this church in Philadelphia needs to know that. It is relevant to their situation because, as we're going to see in this letter, there are a lot of promises that Christ makes to this church. And they need to know that he is trustworthy. They need to know that he is going to follow through on these promises. And not only is he perfect and trustworthy, he's the one, it goes on in Scripture, it says, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will Shut. Now, this is an interest. This is a fascinating turn of phrase. He's got the key of David. Now, we see this thing called the key of David in the Old Testament in Isaiah 22. And uh, this is the authority given to one person uh, in the royal Davidic household. Now, in Scripture, a key is a symbol of authority. 
Someone who holds keys has authority. And being that this is the key of David, it means authority with regard to that particular monarchy. Okay, and as you know, the Davidic line would be the messianic line. Did God make a promise to King David? He did. There's a covenant, the Davidic covenant. He said one of your descendants is going to sit on your throne and he will rule over an everlasting kingdom. And so this is significant for that reason alone because Jesus, as we know, is the only person who meets the requirements to be the heir of David that will sit on his throne. There is no other. It can be no one but Jesus of Nazareth. And so this is significant, but as I said, this is a reference from Isaiah 22, and I'm going to have you turn there. If you've got a physical Bible and you want to go ahead and turn to Isaiah 22, I'll show you something in just a minute. But at the time Isaiah was written, uh, chapter 22, there was a king of Judah named Hezekiah. And Hezekiah had among his uh, regime, his, his uh, administration, a royal steward. That would be the title, and this would be kind of like a, a, a chief administrator. It would be like a prime minister. And a royal steward uh, literally was in possession of a, of a key. It was an actual key, and it was called the key of the house of David, and it went along with the office of the royal steward. And with this, he had authority to open the treasury of the king, which contained all the wealth of Judah, that had accumulated since the time of King David. And so there was a lot of riches in this treasury. And by the time of Hezekiah's reign, it's just absolutely loaded. And this royal steward has the right to release funds, to release wealth from that treasury uh, as the nation had need. So if you want to think uh, of, of Joseph in Egypt at the end of Genesis, okay? As, as they were preparing to go through famine, the Pharaoh appointed Joseph to be something like this. He was to be the prime minister, uh, the vizier of Egypt, and, and he would prepare and he would fill that treasury and they would be prepared for famine and such. Similar kind of deal. And under Hezekiah, there was a guy who occupied this position of royal steward, and it was a man named Shebna. Shebna, and the prophet Isaiah tells us that he was an untrustworthy man, uh, that he, he actually used the treasury to enrich himself. That means he's a thief, okay? And so the Lord commanded through his prophet that Shebna must be replaced. And so they removed him, and there's another person that takes his place. And I want to show you in Isaiah 22, verse 20, it says, In that day, and I want you to listen to the language in this passage, Okay? Uh, and weigh it against what we've read in Revelation. In that day, I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with your robe and will bind your sash on him and will commit your authority, speaking of the king, to his hand, and he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. And I will place on his shoulder, watch, the, king, uh, the key of the house of David. He shall open... And none shall shut. Does that sound familiar? We just read those phrases. And he shall shut and none shall open. And so all of that should, should echo from Revelation 3. And so this untrustworthy servant is replaced by a trustworthy one who is qualified and who possesses the authority, this, this key of David. And so here in Revelation, Christ introduces himself as such a person. He's saying, I've got authority. I have replaced that flawed system that came before me that was not worthy, and I have all authority. And just like that royal steward of Judah, he's got the right to bestow wealth. 
Just like that steward could open and shut the storehouse of Judah, Jesus says, I can bless. I have authority to open up the riches of heaven, and I can allow entrance into the kingdom of God. And the first chapter of Revelation, you you see John encounter the risen Christ for the very first time, and he falls down at the feet of Jesus, and Jesus tells him something. And here's what he tells him in Revelation 1, 17. He says, fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I'm alive forevermore, and I have the keys. What do keys represent? Authority. The keys, he says, of death and Hades. You know what that means, that Christ has the keys of death and Hades? That means that it's ultimately up to him who goes to hell and who goes to heaven. That's the kind of authority that he possesses. And so he can welcome you into salvation. John 6, says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Did you know that? That he must draw you by the Spirit? He says, and I will raise him up on the last day. You know, sometimes when people come to faith in Christ, they get saved. You know, they're talking about their experience. You say, and that's when I found Jesus. Now, I know what they mean. But technically... No, you didn't. You didn't find him. He found you. He, he wasn't lost. You were lost. You're the sheep. He's the shepherd. He found you, okay? That doesn't mean that your will doesn't play a role in that, but it is Christ who grants salvation. In Acts eleven eighteen, he says, when they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God, saying, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. And so think of this key and think of the one who possesses it. That is your access point to another world. Have you read the Chronicles of Narnia? Anybody? Or maybe seen the movie C.S. Lewis, uh, that first book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. You ever read that? Those children, the Pevensey children, uh, they're, they're staying at this big house and there's a big old wardrobe and they go in there and they go past those coats and they realize it is an access point to another world, to the land of Narnia, you know. But here's the thing. Later they try to go through there and there's just a, there's just a back wall to that wardrobe. They can't control when they access it. The access is not theirs. They know where to find it, but it's not under their control. And so we have one who holds a key. And by that one, if we know him and we trust him who has the key, we have access to another world And when we pray, and we pray to that one who holds the key, we are uh, are engaging with that world. It is open to us. But Christ opens doors. That's what keys do. They open doors. And we're going to see this imagery throughout our text tonight. And the doors that he opens are not only to salvation, but also to ministry. And in your notes, it says that he has authority to grant or deny access to God and his work. His work. Uh, you read the book of Acts in chapter 12. Uh, you got this wicked Herod who uh, starts to oppose the apostles. He puts James to death. He locks up Peter in prison. When Peter is in prison in there, it seems like the door is shut to Peter. But who holds the key? Christ does. So Peter's in this prison. Door is shut. He's between two guards. And the church is praying for him. And what are we doing when we pray? We access another world by the one who holds the key. And so by accessing that one, an angel appears in that prison to Peter and the door opens up. 
And Peter is supernaturally obscured from the sight of those guards. And he gets up and he walks out that door. And he keeps walking. And he comes to the gate of the city, which is shut. And it opens on its own. And he walks through it and he just keeps walking. And he goes to the the house of uh, James and John. And what's going on in there? There's a prayer meeting and he, he knocks on that door, which is shut. And the servant girl, her name's Rhoda, she comes to the door and he says, It's Peter. And she's so excited, she forgets to let him in. And she runs, and she tells the others. And they're like, you must have seen his, his angel. You're crazy. He's, not, he's, in, he's in prison. And they come to the door, and they find Peter. He's just standing there, which this story basically tells you that it's easier to get out of prison than it is to get into a prayer meeting. You know. <laughs> and in Acts 16, you've got a different kind of prison story. Paul and Silas, they're in jail in Philippi, and they're praising the Lord. They're singing. They're praying. You remember what happens? Earthquake. God sends an earthquake. Jail gets demolished. All the doors open up. The jailer comes back. He sees all the open doors. He just assumes all the prisoners are gone. He knows what's going to happen. He's going to lose his life uh, because of this. And so he draws his sword. He's about to take his life. What What does Paul say? Don't hurt yourself. We're all still here. You see, sometimes God opens a door, and it's for the purpose of escape. Sometimes he opens a door, it's for a completely different purpose. It's a purpose. He opens, uh, opens up access to ministry opportunity. And this jailer, his next words are, what must I do to be saved? And so he comes to Christ, and not just him, but his whole family. And so this is a God who opens doors. Can you think of times when God opened doors for you to do ministry? He opened doors for you to share the gospel with somebody? Yeah, I am praying for that for you. If that's never happened to you, either it did and you didn't recognize it, or it needs to happen, and so we pray for that. I want everybody here to be able to share their faith, and I, I would just ask that God would open doors for all of us to share Christ. But for the unfaithful, God can shut doors. He can shut doors. Uh, Jesus says, I am also he who shuts and no one opens. He can close those doors. And this would correspond to what we read about Ephesus. Remember, he said, I will take your lampstand from you because you have forgotten. You've left your first love. And so he can unleash the faithful to accomplish amazing things. But for those who have let that fire die for an unfaithful church, he'll slam the door shut. And he will will bring it all to a close. And so we see... Judgments pronounced on specific congregations. Can God shut down a church? Absolutely he can. We saw a dead church last week in Sardis. Uh, And it happens, I'll tell you what happens. It happens the day a church departs from the word of God. He will remove his blessing from that church. Folks, this is why I, I really endeavor to teach verse by verse. I don't want to slip into, even unwittingly, a habit of not teaching the word of God. And if we teach line by line, verse by verse, we are assured we're going to hear from the Lord. It's not, you're not, you're, the word of Scott will do you no good. Okay? It's got to be the word of God or nothing. All right? And so that is his character. Now we're going to move into the Lord's commendation. Often you'll get an attaboy in these letters. You'll get a commendation from the Lord. Not so with Sardis and not so with the church next week. But here there's a commendation. Who is this church of the open door? Well, Jesus says, verse 8, I know your works. 
And we've seen that phrase before. He knows everything. He sees their works. What kind of works? Well, whatever, whatever they did, it impressed Christ. He says, behold, I have set before you an open door. I see this imagery is all over this passage. An open door which no one is able to shut. And I know that you have but little power. See, he's saying, you're not, you're not that big a deal in and of yourself, but you're trusting in me. I am a big deal, he says. And uh, you're not brilliant, you're not mighty, but you've got a little power, he says, and yet you have kept my word. You have kept my word. And this means, in your notes, that they were faithful first to the scriptures. They were faithful to the word of God. A king has but one requirement of his royal messenger. Just accurately deliver the message. All right? Get it there on time. And speak true. I want you to speak on my behalf accurately. Don't embellish it. Don't add to it. Don't take away from it. Philadelphia, you've got some power because you've kept my word, he says. You know, uh, he's the one with the keys to truth. That means he determines what is right and true. And as the church of Jesus Christ, we are obligated to comply with what he says is right and true. We don't get to shift and sway with the winds of culture. We don't get to determine what is relevant in today's society. We don't get to tweak the message and contextualize it for people today and deviate from what it originally said to the audience to which it was written. We've got to accurately present the scriptures as they were delivered. And my prayer is that we will correctly interpret them as they were written and as they were meant to be interpreted 20 centuries ago. The message has not changed. It's the same message. All right? And so we don't impose our modern sensibilities. We don't, you know, uh, how many of you have been to Waffle House? Okay. You know what? You ever watched them make the waffles at Waffle House? They got that big old waffle iron, right? They open that bad boy up. They pour the stuff in there. They close it. And it just, it just cooks away. And then what happens? That batter starts to come out the sides, doesn't it? And so then they take a paring knife and they run it around that thing and they slice off all that excess batter and then they open it up and they serve you up your waffle. And you know what we do? We take the word of God and we crush it on a grid of our own modern sensibilities. And whatever doesn't fit within that grid, we just take a spiritual paring knife and we just slice it off. And so we, we make it what we want, and we get rid of the stuff we don't want, and we serve up our modern cultural waffle. And the Lord says, uh-uh, you serve up what I give you. And you don't add to it, you don't take away from it. It honestly blows my mind how liberal pastors can get up and just preach about absolutely nothing every weekend. I really, I don't even, it's a little impressive, frankly, uh, from a human perspective, because they can figure out some new slant on scripture. I'm not that creative. Uh, I can't figure out how they do that. My biggest problem is just fitting all this into the time constraints that I have, which I'm looking at the clock. I got to move. Okay. <laughs> he says, you kept my word. And then he says, and you have not denied my name. You have not denied my name. Under what circumstances would one deny Christ's name? Well, in your notes, they do this despite opposition. They keep his word despite opposition. Did they have opposition? Yes, they did. Uh, for Philadelphia, it would come from a Jewish sect that stood against the gospel of Christ. We've read, a, a, a read about the Nicolaitans. 
the philosophic Greeks that mocked Christianity. And so they had some opposition uh, that stood against them. They faced cultural alienation in that society. The church can face that today. And we are to stand against opposition. And we can learn from this church of Philadelphia that all God asks of us is that we stay true to his book and that we don't cave. We don't cave to those who stand against it. First Timothy uh, chapter 1, verse 12, Paul says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he has judged me faithful, appointing to his service. You know, in John 15, 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you, okay? So you, no matter what you face, you abide in my word. You stick with my word. You don't deviate from my word. Abide in it. And what, what's going to happen? You abide in my word. You ask what you wish, and it will be done for you. You ask in my name, it says, it says elsewhere. That means that the more we're in his word, you say, really, he'll give us whatever we want? Well, if you're abiding in his word, you're going to want what he wants. You're going to want what he wants. You're not going to want what he doesn't want if you're abiding in his word. So we're, we're going to move now into this last section of this letter. This is the, there's just three sections I'm going to go through here. But this last one's where we're going to camp. And these are the Lord's promises to the faithful. This is a faithful church. There's no condemnation. There's no rebuke. There's just commendation and promise. And there's a whole lot of promise. There's a lot of promise. Now remember, he's introduced himself as the one who's holy and true. And they need to know that because of the wealth of promise that he's going to give them. They need to know he's good for it. He says in verse 9, Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Wow. And this is a tragic phrase right here. We've seen this before, the synagogue of Satan. In week two, we looked at that suffering church, Smyrna. Now remember, there's only two churches that don't get any negative marks. They both face something that Christ calls the synagogue of Satan. They were plagued by this local group of ethnic Jews who had turned their back on the Messiah. And they refused the Christ. They opposed all who followed Jesus. And Christ is saying that outwardly they're Jewish, but inwardly they are not the people of promise. Uh, Romans 9 says... They are not all Israel who are of Israel. What's that mean? It means that Christianity is the ultimate, most pure form of Judaism. It is the natural destination at which Judaism must arrive. And it's the embrace of the Messiah, the true Messiah. Now that doesn't mean that because you're a Christian, God looks at you and says, you are Israel, and all of the promises given to Israel now apply to you. That's not what this means. It means that when Paul says in Romans 11 that all Israel will be saved, if you've read that in Romans 11, what he means is that in the end when the deliverer comes from Zion, every Jew present at that time, the scales are going to fall from their eyes, and they will look upon him, and they will mourn him as one mourns an only son, and they will recognize him as their Messiah. And the whole nation, the, whole, the entirety of Israel in that day will be saved. They will be saved. But until then, true Israel only refers to the Jews who know saving faith. He looks at them in the eyes of the Lord. They are true Israel. 
And this is actually the synagogue of Satan, very, very tragic moniker. Even though he calls them, I would say that this is not a term of hatred. This is not a disdainful term. It's disdainful in terms of their belief, but he absolutely loves them. He absolutely loves them. And uh, we need to pray for the Jewish people in the, in the, as a whole, that they would come to Christ. That they would come to Christ. We don't know when the Lord's returning. If they make it to the tribulation, they got a shot. But until then, if they don't turn to Christ and they leave this earth, they will die in their sin. And so we need to pray for Israel. And now look, he goes on, he says, Behold, I will make them, this is the synagogue of Satan he's talking about, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Now, when I started reading verse 9, I'll just tell you, he's talking about synagogue of Satan, you know, and you know, they say they're this, but they lie. You know, I'm ready for him to say, and I'm going to smoke them. I'm going to smite them. You know, in fiery judgment. But what does he say? He says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to come and I'm going to make them bow down and they will learn that I have loved you. Wow. What does this mean? It means in your notes that the Lord's key will open the hearts of non-believers. This is his promise. The heart of the lost is locked up tight. Who can unlock a lost heart? Only Christ. Who is it that draws men's souls? It's the Lord. He says, they will learn. Other versions say, I will make them know. Uh, Now, that can involve some chastening. That can involve some justice. Often it does. But is there a guy in Scripture that God takes who is bitter and violent and opposes God, opposes Christ, and and, and God just turns him around? Is there a guy that flips? Can God transform a murderer into a missionary? Yes, he did. He did that with Saul of Tarsus. Became the greatest Christian who ever lived. And so there are those who have stood against you who want to see you, Christian, go down in flames. And he's saying, I will bring about a scenario where they, were, where they will bow at your feet humbly and they will understand that I'm on your side. And they will be granted enlightenment and they will be converted and their eyes will be opened. And isn't that the best possible outcome? I mean, you think of the people that you would consider your enemies, and I know what our human tendency is, because I guarantee you, there have been people that have come into my life that I'm like, I want to bless them in the name of Jesus, you know, I mean, I'm just like, you know, you're just like, God, you know, would you just land on them with all of your might and fury, okay? But what is the best possible outcome? That they would come to faith, that they'd get right with God. It'd be so much better if their lives would be turned around. That's what we need to pray for. And Christ is promising this church that because of your faithfulness, he's going to do the seemingly impossible. And in verse 10, he says, because you've kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial. Okay, this is getting good now. Because here's what his key will also do. We're going to see a lot of promises where he's going to take that key and he will open, 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 open. Here's something that he's going to close. And it's to your benefit. He will, in your notes, close the door to divine judgment. Close the door to divine judgment for you. For you. Okay? This is a promise of protection. From what? From, from the retribution of their enemies? No. From prison? No. From sickness? No. From, from, from war? From disaster in general? 
Well, look, can God protect us from those things? He can. Is that what he's promising here? No. No. This is a promise of protection that I would say the faithful church of every age can claim. We can claim this promise. We can. Christians today, this is the hour of trial, he says in Scripture, that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. Okay? Now listen, Revelation is a prophetic book. Uh, when Jesus says, I will do something, that means it's going to be in the future. It's something in the future. I will keep you from the hour. The hour. That word hour implies this is not a general status that will go on indefinitely. All right? This is a finite period of time. It has a beginning. It has an end. What kind of hour is it? He says it's an hour of trial. Okay? Something difficult. You say, well, we go through difficult things as Christians, don't we? Yeah, we do. We go through difficult things. That is not what this is referring to. This is something altogether different. This is the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world. This is a globally inclusive difficulty, to say the least. It says it will try those who dwell on the earth. Those who dwell on the earth. That is not the church. That is not the church. That phrase is used many times in Revelation, like six times, seven times, something like that. And it refers to non-believers. Non-believers. It's a worldwide trial, and it's going to impact the lost and it's speaking of what we call the tribulation. The tribulation. Uh, some of you wish I would do the whole book of Revelation. I'm not going to t this time, but you're going to get a little tribulation tonight. Okay? Because in, in Revelation 6, John sees in heaven, to, just to speak of those who dwell on the earth, referring to lost people. John 6, he sees the martyrs that will lose their lives during the tribulation. Saints that are slain, the, the those who come to faith after the rapture, and they're, they're put to death. And he sees their souls in heaven beneath the altar, and they cry out to God. And in Revelation 16, he says, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? There's that phrase, those who dwell on the earth. Okay? You've got to avenge our blood against those who dwell. They're, they're the lost. They're the unbelieving. In, Re in Revelation 8... The trumpet judgments are about to commence. And John is witness to this eagle that flies overhead that, that begins to speak. And what he says in Revelation 8.13, he says, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth. Those who dwell on the earth. At the blast of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. He's saying judgment is about to come down again. Woe to you unbelieving on the earth. And then in Revelation 13... You've got the Antichrist. He is now uh, uh, apparently raised from uh, a fatal wound. And then there's another figure at that time called the false prophet. And the false prophet will be uh, someone who conducts a, a global religion centered around the worship of the Antichrist. And of this false prophet, it says in Revelation 13, 14, it says, By the signs it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, the Antichrist, it deceives those who dwell on the earth. There's that phrase again, telling them to make an image for the beast. And so the context of this phrase is always the unbelieving. And so we, we believe that the tribulation, the globe, the world at that time will be populated by non-believers. Where will the church be? 
I teach, if you came to our prophecy series that we did, you will know this. I teach a pre-tribulational rapture of the church. I believe that we're going to be vacated from the, the planet before the tribulation. You say, where do you get that, Pastor Scott? Well, in 1 Thessalonians 4, uh, we learn about this thing called the rapture. Uh, in verse 16, it says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command and with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. That means every Christian that has ever died, their body will be in the earth, their soul will be with Christ. When he comes back, their souls come with him, their bodies rise. Okay? And then verse 17, We who are alive, who are left, will be caught up. Okay? Some people say, well, there's no, the rapture doesn't appear in Scripture. Uh, it's right there. Yeah, well, that, that's not the word rapture. Au contraire. The phrase caught up in the, in the uh, Greek is harpazo. Harpazo means to snatch, to violently take. And the Latin word, it translates into Latin as rapio, rapio. And that is where we get rapture. So that's where the word comes from indirectly. It's right there. We're caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. And then verse 18 says, therefore, encourage one another with these words. Encourage one another. This is meant to be encouraging. Now, if you're, if you're the church and you're going to go through the, the horror and hell of the tribulation, what's there to be encouraged about? This is, encur- this is to be comforting. This whole letter to the church of Philadelphia is meant to be a comfort to them, increasingly so. And in 1 Thessalonians, these words by Paul meant to be a comfort. Have you ever been really comfortable? You ever go to the sharper image? What do they got at the sharper image? They got those chairs. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, those chairs that you sit in and you put, they got these like, it's, it's like made for your body, like you slip into it and you're like encased in this chair and they got these things that massage your legs and your feet and your back and your neck. How many of you have gone into Sharper Image just to do that? We've got some furniture stores in town that have these things too. I have been run out of such stores because I can't get enough of that stuff. We were just talking, the elders and I uh, and our executive pastor, we met last night. We were talking about you know how stressful ministry can be. And we thought, wouldn't it be great if we had budget for one of those chairs, you know? Now, we're not going to do that, so, you know, don't get all, all uptight about it. That's how rumors begin. But if I could have one of those bad boys in my office, I would name it The Word. And then when anybody called the office for Pastor Scott, our secretary could say, I'm sorry, he's in The Word. Yeah. That has zippity doodah to do with this text. But anyway, it's kind of fun to think about. All right. Uh, first Thessalonians, the first chapter of that letter in 1 Thessalonians, Paul says that the church is to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Are we to wait for the tribulation? Are we to wait for the Antichrist? No, we're to wait for his son from heaven. He's the one who's coming. And what's he coming to do? Deliver us from the wrath to come. So he's coming in the future, and when he comes, he will deliver us from wrath. Now, some people say, well, doesn't that talk, isn't that talking about like wrath? Isn't that, doesn't that refer to the deliverance from you know, uh, eternal condemnation for sin? No. 
No, because this is a future event. Let me tell you something. You've already been delivered from the consequences of sin. That's already happened. We're not waiting for that. You've been delivered, okay? You've been delivered. If you've trusted in Christ, if you've trusted in Christ, he has delivered you, past tense. This is a future deliverance from a specific season on the earth. So we're not looking forward to that. We're looking forward to Christ. And what is that tribulation? Seven years of hell on earth. This is the wrath of God poured out on planet earth. On the unbelieving. And among the unbelieving will be Israel. But he is not seeking to destroy Israel. That is not his intent. His his intent with Israel is to break them gently, bring them to their knees, and draw their countenance to the Messiah. And it will work. They will come in droves back to Jesus Christ as Messiah. And so the hour of trial is, uh, is centered on Israel, really. That's why the tribulation is called the time of Jacob's trouble. Jacob, who was renamed Israel. And the nation is named for him. Uh, it's called the 70th week of Daniel. Uh, 70 weeks of Daniel was a prophecy for Daniel and his people, the Jews, okay? And so that's what the focal point will be. It won't be for us. And so this is a comfort to this Philadelphian church. And back in our Revelation 3 text in verse 10, uh, 11, rather, he says, I am coming soon. How many of you believe Jesus is coming soon? He's coming soon. That means suddenly, okay? Soon is relative. You know, it could be a thousand years from now. It could be in the next five minutes. We don't know. But either way, it's going to be sudden. The rapture will occur. The church will be collected. The restraint of sin will be lifted. The Antichrist subsequently will be revealed. And there will be seven years of judgment that will fall on the earth. And it's going to happen very, very quickly and suddenly. And therefore, with that knowledge, the church functions... Uh, in such a manner as it is about the business of the kingdom because we don't know how much time we've got. Does that make sense? Right? When Christ ascended, the disciples are watching him go. The angels are like, men of Galilee, woohoo, hello. Why are you staring into the heavens? This same Jesus will return. Okay? Be on your way. Get busy. Tick-tock, boys. You've got to recruit some subjects for the coming kingdom. Amen? The kingdom's coming. All right. And he says in that verse, hold fast. Because you don't have much time. You've got to hold fast. The only command he gives them. It's not condemnation. It's a command, but it's tied to a promise. Watch this. Hold fast so that no one may seize your crown. Your crown. There's a promise here in your notes. The promise is that this key will open the door to eternal reward. Eternal reward, okay? You say, is that salvation? No. Your salvation, if you're in Christ, that's a done deal. That's a foregone conclusion. Salvation is not a reward. Salvation is a free gift. A reward is based on works, okay? You hold fast. There are eternal rewards And we as believers will be judged at the judgment seat of Christ and we will be granted rewards based on what we have done in the body. 2 Corinthians 5, uh, verse 9. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And some read that and they go, aha, we're going to get what we're due for what we've done, whether good or evil. That means this could involve punishment. 
No. There's no punishment here. You get reward, not punishment. It's your reward based on what you've done, whether good or evil. Focus on the previous verse. We make it our aim to please him. The word there originally would be ambition. Your ambition is important here. The works that you do in the body, it's not the works themselves that matter. It's the ambition behind them. It's the motivation behind them. You can do what would be noble things, but if you do them for the wrong reason, there's no reward for that. Christ doesn't care about that. He wants to know what you're doing out of love and obedience to him. And so we, we don't do things for the favor of man. Are there Christians who do things for the favor of man? Are there pastors who do things for the favor of man? Yeah, or the glorification of self, right? Absolutely. And so he's looking into our heart. Man looks on the outside, God looks on the heart. And so there is a promise of reward. What you have done for your own glory, what are you gonna get? You're gonna get what you do. What is it? It's a sense of loss. It's a sense of missed opportunity. It's not punishment. It's just, I didn't do what I should have done. It's that awareness. You say, well, that didn't sound so bad. Uh, you want to be in the presence of a holy God and feel that way? I don't. I don't. You say, well, I thought there were no sorrow in heaven. You're not in heaven yet. You're in the judgment. All right? And so there's a promise here, promise of reward. Verse 12, he goes on. He says, to the one who conquers, I'll make him a pillar in the temple of my God. And so in your notes, this key will open the door to eternal honor. Eternal honor. You know, in the first Jewish temple that Solomon built, there were two massive pillars on either side of the entrance, the ulam. Okay? And so these pillars were gigantic. They were made of brass. They were 27 feet tall. They were six feet thick. They were topped with ornate decoration. They were not structural pillars. They didn't hold anything up. They're there as monuments. And on these pillars, on each pillar was a name. I don't know if you knew this. Uh, we read about it in 1 Kings 7. Solomon put these pillars up there. One pillar has the name Yaquin. Uh, Yaquin. The other pillar is Boaz. Boaz. Those are names of individuals in Scripture. Uh, Boaz, you probably remember. He's the guy that married Ruth. All right, he's the great-grandfather of King David. So he's in the family of Christ. All right, the lineage there. The other guy, Yaquin, uh, or, or Jaquin, depends on, you know, if you're from America or not. Uh, he is uh, the son of Simeon, who is the son of Jacob. And so these are both people of promise. Were these pillars named for these guys? Well, we don't know. Some think that maybe these names were just like code names for royals, like Yaquin represented King David and Boaz represented Solomon. We don't know. But here's what we do know. We know the meanings of the names. Yaquin means uh, he will establish. Boaz means in strength. Okay? As a believer in Jesus Christ, you have been established in him. And because you are in him, you are perpetually walking in strength. And one day, Christian, you will be honored in the house of the Lord in eternity, not based on your own merits, but because of your rootedness and your sustenance in Jesus Christ. But you will have a permanent place of honor in his house. And because of this, he goes on in verse 12, he says, never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God. And in your notes, that means he will open the door to eternal fellowship. All right? In the Old Testament era, you visit the temple, eventually you leave the temple. You don't come to stay forever. Now, you might come back, but then you got to leave again. When you are in glory, you are never leaving. 
you are never leaving. You will be in fellowship with the Lord always. Not only will you be there as a pillar in his house, there's going to be a name written on you. He says, uh, I'm going to write the name of my God. And not only that name, he says, he goes on, he says, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven. And what this means in your notes is that key will open the door to eternal citizenship. Citizenship. We live on earth presently, but we, my friends, have citizenship elsewhere. Did you know that? You are a citizen of another land, of a heavenly country. Philippians 3.20, our citizenship is in heaven. We eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. We've been pointing out how these churches represent eras in church history. Where does Philadelphia fit in? Last week we talked about Sardis, the dead church. We said they were representative of the Reformation era church. Now, we, we, we said the Reformation was an important event, the Protestant Reformation. It, it, it corrected the doctrinal error of, of the Roman Catholic Church in the Middle Ages. But we also said that though that was a necessary event, that those churches that came out of that event, many of them committed the same, uh, the same sins that the old Roman church did. You know, they became kind of an a enterprise unto themselves. And they glorified self, and they became a, a team to which you swear allegiance. And there are many Protestant churches across Europe that are just as dead as the old Roman churches are. And so that's what Sardis symbolizes. But out of the Reformation era, there would come some great churches. There would come some great theological traditions. And so Philadelphia represents the era that follows the Reformation. And when you read a history book on on the church, when you look at church history and you read through that section on the Protestant Reformation, the next section is going to be about the expansion of the gospel and how it's going to go forth. And you're going to see after the Reformation, those post-Reformation years, Europe is going to take sides over the gospel, but it's going to go out from Europe. It's going to go across an ocean. It's going to land in a place called America. People have asked me, is America in the Bible? I always say no. But one could make the argument that it is inferred along with the entirety of the 18th and 19th century of Christianity, okay? Because that was a tremendous season in the life of Christianity, in the life of the church, because of the spread of the gospel. America alone had three great awakenings, three great spiritual revivals. This country became a center, uh, as well as England, Okay, a center for world evangelism. There's been no greater uh, locale for the promotion of the Great Commission than England and the United States. The greatest comfort for the Jewish people and ally for the Jewish people has been the United States. Uh, there have been more Christian publishing houses uh, that have emerged here than anywhere else. Uh, you, you see more Orthodox theology spread from the West. Uh, and it, it came to America via the pilgrims. They came from, from England, all right? And speaking of England, you had some great men of God that went out. They took the gospel out. It, the gospel went to India. A guy named William Carey. gospel went to China. A guy named Hudson Taylor. Uh, the gospel went to Africa. A guy named David Livingston. It went to Burma, and it went by an American. The first American missionary, one of my heroes, a guy named Adoniram Judson. Adoniram Judson. He went, to, he went to India first. They kicked him out. He went next door, went to Burma. 
He served on the mission field six years before he saw one convert. Can you imagine? What would you have done? Six years of nothing? I got to tell you, if I came to Burlington and I didn't see one convert in six years, I'd question my life and direction. A little bit. Humanly speaking, okay? He stuck with it. He won one guy to the Lord after six years. Another six years go by, now he's got 18. 18 in 12 years. When he arrived in Burma, there was not one church. 30 years after his death, there were 63 churches and over 7,000 baptized believers because of Adoniram Judson. And in addition, while he was in Burma, he spent his time translating the Bible into the Burmese language. It is still the preferred translation there today. And I was always astounded that here this guy, he, work, he labors for Christ six years, doesn't see a single convert, and then finally he does. And I thought, what must that moment have been like when he won a guy to Christ? What must that have been? The celebration in his heart over winning somebody at long last and then looking ahead and saying, who's next? I just marvel at that. And then my wife and I were treated to, uh, uh, Samaritan's Purse had the Global Connect Conference in Orlando a few months ago. We went down there. And we were at dinner one night. We sat at a table with a bunch of people we didn't know. And sitting right next to me was a lady from, from Myanmar, which is modern-day Burma. She was Burmese, and she, was a, a, she worked with Samaritan's Purse. And I was excited to talk to her because I wanted to ask her, have you ever heard of Adoniram Judson? Because he's a hero of mine, missionary hero. And I wanted to ask her, but some other people were talking to her, and she began to share her story. And she was telling the whole table how, you know, she came from a Christian family. And then somebody said, well, how, how is it that your family is, is Christian? Because Burma is not overwhelmingly a Christian nation. So how, how did your family come to Christ? And she said, well, have you ever heard of Adoniram Judson? And I went, oh, 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 oh. I have, I have. And she said, uh, she said my great-grandfather was Adoniram Judson's very first convert. I mean, I was like, what? That was so awesome. And I, I just freaked out. I probably scared her a little bit, a little bit. You know, I said, that's the guy. And she goes, yes. So we talked about that. Just amazing. But there were many great spiritual movements in the 18th, 19th century. You had the women's missionary movement. You had the student volunteer movement. You had missions agencies like Africa Inland Mission, China Inland Mission, uh, Sudan Interior Mission. You had great seminaries, Protestant seminaries that emerged. Great doctrine and theology went out. They raised up preachers and missionaries, not monks, not priests, to facilitate some system of works like in the Middle Ages. Uh, the, the gospel went out. There were moral societies that arose as a result of a gospel-permeated culture. This is how we abolished slavery, folks, is because of Christians who lived out what they believed and what they understood the scriptures to say. Slavery would have never been abolished without Christianity. The most ardent abolitionists were all believers. And God did amazing things. And so remarkable was that season in the life of the church that it gave rise to a particular doctrine that I don't, I don't personally agree with called post-millennialism. 
Postmillennialism is the belief that Christ will return after his kingdom is established on earth. And in this era, things were going so well that a lot of Christians thought, we're building the kingdom right now. And if we just keep building it, Christ will return and he'll just assume the throne in the kingdom that we have built. And as wonderful as that era was, that belief was erroneous. And it finally fell apart in 1914 because that's when Christian nations started killing each other on a scale never before seen. And by the end of World War I, post-millennialism was largely abandoned. It's kind of seen a rise uh, in recent years as we have Christian nationalists uh, kind of step forward and they've got this kind of theonomy. But we're not building the kingdom here. The kingdom is future. We are subjects of that coming kingdom. And so in a spiritual sense, we are the kingdom, but we're waiting for the literal kingdom to come. Our job in the meantime is to recruit subjects for that kingdom. That's our job. And Revelation 20 describes in vivid detail what that'll look like uh, in Revelation 21. And you can read that on your own, but it is going to be a vivid glorious place and we are citizens of that kingdom we have a permanent citizenship in heaven and he says that he's going to put that name on us his the name of his god the name of the city and he says and my own new name my own new name and this is the most important name of all what's this name in revelation 19 we see when the lord comes back uh, we're going to learn his new name. He's going to have a new name? Really? What is it? Revelation 19.12, it says that when he returns, his eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. What is this name that only he knows? Well, in Revelation 19.16, we see what it is. It says on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written King of kings and Lord of lords. And I taught this in a young adult's Bible study, and there was one young adult in there, and he was kind of rough. He'd, he'd come to Christ, but he was from the streets, and he was all tatted up, and he said, whoa, stop right there. Jesus has a thigh tattoo. <laughs> he was really excited about that. And I was like, apparently, I guess so. And the world will see that one day, and they're going to know that name. But you know what? We know that name because it's in his word right here. He's the king of kings, and he's the Lord of lords. And he wraps it all up, verse 13. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I'd say this is a pretty comforting letter, wouldn't you? There's no threats. There's no, if you don't do this, I'm going to remove this. I'm going to, I'm going to shut you down. None of that. It's all open door. Open, this is the church of the open door. They will receive reward, honor, fellowship, citizenship, all because of faithfulness. Folks, this is our blueprint right here. We need to be this church. We need to be this church. And by the grace of God, we will be this church. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask your blessing upon everybody here. We just lift up our mission team as well. And God, we do pray, as, as we've talked about tonight, this era uh, this golden era of the Christian church represented by Philadelphia. Uh, there is no reason that we can't experience another revival before your return. Make it so, Lord Jesus. We, there's, there's friends, there's relatives, there's coworkers, there's neighbors, 
There's people we care about, and there's people who frankly give us a hard time, and we want to all see them come to faith in Christ. We want them to know you. We want them to be in heaven with us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.